0: show. My name is Ashley David, and today's guest wears many hats. You may know him as the resident expert on Comedy Central's The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, or as the PC personified on the Get a Mac commercials. You may know him because you read men's journal McSweeney's The Believer, or because you check out This American Life on public radio. If you are haunting Williamsburg, Brooklyn at just the right times, then you know him as the host and curator of the Little Gray Book Lectures. And if you are lucky enough to be a talented young writer like the University of Michigan's director of creative writing, Peter Ho Davies, then you may even know today's guest as the nicest guy you ever shared a cab with upon leaving a Paris Review party. And if you're a Peter H. Gilmore, high priest of the Church of Satan, then you're pretty psyched that John Hodgman is bringing more laughter into the world. Chances are good that no matter who you are, John Hodgman has at least blipped across your radar screen. Welcome to The Living Writers Show.
1: Thank you very much. Where did you dig up that old recording of me yodeling? That was, wow, I never thought I would hear that again.
0: Well, we dig and dig and dig. Wow, <laughs>
1: yeah, that was during my high school yodeling career. I was a state high school yodeling champ. Blue ribbons. Blue ribbons, and the reason that I did so well was because I was able to make my voice imitate an extremely old recording.
0: <laughs> well With a done. lot of scratching on a it. A lot of scratching on the on there. Yeah. Well, lovely. Um, around here, we know you as the professional writer who penned the areas of my expertise. That uh. almanac that contains all kinds of true things you made up.
1: Yes, that is correct. My book is a book of uh, a trivia book, like the Old Book of Lists um, or uh, any of the many American almanacs and compendia and sort of lay encyclopedia that preceded it, full of all sorts of fascinating, trivial facts and uh, historical oddities, with the exception that in my book, all of the amazing true facts are made up by me.
0: Well, I wonder if you would read the entire title for us. It's we it with the areas of my expertise. No, but but
1: that is not the complete title. Here is the here is the full title. An almanac of complete world knowledge, compiled with instructive annotation, and arranged in useful order by me, John Hodgman, a professional writer, in the areas of my expertise, which include matters historical, matters literary, matters cryptozoological, hobo matters, food, drink, and cheese, which is a kind of food, squirrels, lobsters, and eels, haircuts, utopia, what will happen in the future, and most other subjects. But I'm sorry, I can't tell you any more than that, because when, what the other subjects are, because we're going to be talking about that tonight at the Borders, number one.
0: Then we'll leave that off today's talk.
1: Yeah, I can't tell you any more subjects, no more subjects. that I'm an expert in, except well, if you ask questions about them, then I will tell you.
0: Very kind of you. I understand you've only had about eight hours sleep in the last two days. So yes,
1: that's true. Thanks I, for being nice. I have been trampling and yodeling around the country.
0: Lucky us. Well, we always begin the show with a brief passage from the book in question. How about starting us off with something from Omens and Portents, and then we'll dive right into Hellfire and Damnation, followed by Decline and Fall.
1: Yes, of course. Omens and Portents for the coming year. Traditional almanacs regularly included information about what to expect in the coming year with regard to crop yields, tidal patterns, moon rises, and so on. However, they were hardly scientific, relying heavily on astrology and various ancient methods of scrying, such as crystal gazing, tea-leaf reading, sheep-dog consultation, and guessing. But modern times require modern methods, and also more general predictions for those who are not necessarily farmers, or sailors, or werewolves. Thus, the accompanying omen versus portents table of the kind currently in use by most actuaries. As these scientific soothsayers know, the signature of the future is written on the here and now. Thanks to careful observation and experimentation, we now know, for example, that a rise in oil prices occurring in the same year as the birth of an albino buffalo will cause us to inevitably embrace polygamy and the open use of jetpacks.
0: Thank you. That's John Hodgman reading from the shortened title, The Areas of My Expertise, from the section Omens and Portents."
1: Here's a fun fact. You know, I was in Chicago recently reading from this book, and someone told me that a white albino buffalo had been born in his hometown, and we have had an increase in oil prices this year.
0: Wow. Well, I'm wondering then.
1: So you you know. Jetpacks, they're coming.
0: They're coming. Well, and lots of, lots of things are coming, and, and and including some more about what that is. I've got a big question about it, but before we dive right into that big question that's mm-hmm. coming, um, I wonder if you could tell me how you're feeling about, as you wrote in that passage there, the signature of the future that's written on the here and now. What's How are you feeling about the jetpacks and the albino?
1: Well, obviously I'm looking forward to the jetpacks, because jetpacks are awesome. Uh, but, you know, uh, the, the, the future... Um, could look a little brighter from where I sit these days. It's, a, it's obviously troubled times. I hope the chip packs will solve them. I hope it will not be Ragnarok, the ancient Norse uh, apocalypse. But uh, based on my observation of the various old farmers' wisdoms of uh, omens, like, you know, woolly bear caterpillars crawling across the road and the same day that you see an obese child eating a corn of cob, it looks like Ragnarok is also on the horizon, I'm afraid to say.
0: Well, I, I I notice from the table that follows, the table you mentioned in the past yes, you read book. Yes, my book is
1: full of charts and tables which make for great reading on the radio.
0: They do. I'm <laughs> hoping you can read from left to right <laughs> all see, of those boxes. Exactly.
1: They're are, there are visual flow charts that just, you know, twirl off the tongue in a non-visual medium.
0: Well, I'm not going to ask you to read it because no. that would demonstrate things that might just send me out of here laughing. But I'd be happy to,
1: to a- answer any questions you might have on Ragnarok. How I made the lines so straight on the table, for example. I how? used a ruler. Fabulous! Mm-hmm, yeah,
0: um, you didn't melt that into the radiator with the crayons in first grade. <laughs> no, then. no, no, no. So tell me about the um, about Ragnarok. Yes. Um, that's well,
1: when I say Ragnarok, uh, I'm speaking of a very specific actuarial term, not the uh, the Norse apocalypse, in which the gods known as the Aesir meet the legions of evil led by Loki, the trickster god, on the battlefield of Vigrid a doomed confrontation in which nearly all participants will perish and the earth itself will be consumed in fire. Among professional actuaries, Ragnarok refers to the same event, but it is not believed that Surt will join the battle with his army of fire giants. And in the end, most of the Aesir will die instead from lifestyle-related causes like smoking and snuff-taking and meat addiction. So that's the difference. difference, In both cases, all humans perish in fire, but... Yes, That's, it's a different term. They die in flame. Yeah.
0: But what's particularly interesting to me about Ragnarok is that um, it appears many times in your table of omens and portents. Yes, um, it seems something of an inevitability.
1: Cast the runes and read the papers. I think you know it's coming. Unfortunately, it's coming. yeah.
0: Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about decline and fall then. Okay. And um, I'm wondering if you see any precedence um what comes to mind immediately to me just because i've been reading about it on the side a little bit is um constantine um when he consolidated the empire the roman empire that is in the fourth century right um and then the decline and fall that sort of there there seem to me to be a few parallels there right um do you see any precedence for what we're going to now or is this sort of is this ragnarok its own its own thing
1: well i mean i think that uh If you are trying to get me to comment on current events, I shall do it. And here is my my comment. Many asked me, including one woman last night in Milwaukee, whether or not uh, there was any sort of relationship thematically between my pack of lies and the current administration in Washington, D.C. Are you familiar with them?
0: Uh, Have occasionally, you heard I've yeah. heard of them. Yeah, I hear of them every now and then. Yes.
1: And you know, I my response was that um you know they're all lies. Lies are all the same. They're all kinds of stories. Uh I think that it's very dangerous to govern a nation with stories. However, and we've certainly done it throughout history. Stories serve a purpose, which is to in some ways, consolidate people around a thematic idea of what this nation is all about, to be sure. But on the day to day governance, I think uh, reliance on facts is more important. You know, I studied literary theory uh, about 1,000 years ago at Yale University, and, uh, you know, that was the seat of moral relativism and sort of the idea that nothing was actually knowable and there were no true facts. And to some degree, I reveled in that whole concept, and as part of what you know, drove me to enjoy writing, and uh, and writing books like these. But uh, you know, for all of uh, the current administration's emphasis on we believe in right and wrong and truth and and falsehood, and this rejection of this sort of uh, effete uh, academic uh, relativism, it's in fact the most postmodern. Um, government that I've ever encountered before, because every fact is relative to who's telling it and what party they belong to, to the point that, you know, we protect pedophiles because really they were being set up by the 16-year-olds simply because they are, belong to one party as opposed to the other. So it's very, very weird, uh, creepy time uh, to be telling lies. And so that's my feeling. Boy, can we really rap about this now?
0: Yes, we can. Got <laughs>
1: very serious there it for a
0: did. second. It mm. did. Well, I was, I was waiting for you to nod off. You told me that you had no sleep. And I'm I was sorry. Thinking maybe <laughs> I'm you just sorry. nod right off then. Uh, I,
1: think, I think it's time for everyone out there listening to the radio to wake up. We're going to tell jokes again. Come on. Come on. Get up. Get up. Okay. We're back.
0: So in humor, then, are you finding Mm. a place to deal with that scary time? No.
1: In humor, I am finding a place to tell funny jokes. I mean, truthfully, you know, there is um, one requirement of humor uh, that I've already failed desperately in this interview, and that is it has to be funny. You know, Um, I feel very happy to be affiliated in what small way with The Daily Show because uh it in is really engaging with the world around us and I think that's an important thing to do for humor to do but they have only one rule and that is is it funny i mean it has to be funny if it uh you know i the the work that i do on the daily show tends not to be stridently political one way or the other but the fact is it shouldn't because it can't things that are just rants and manifestos cannot be funny unless well you know Marx's Manifesto had some chuckles in it. Comic moments? Yeah, well, the beard, come on. Well, all right, the
0: beard. In fact, we'll talk about some facial hair later on in the show. Yeah, sure, okay. facial hair is funny.
1: Right. But that's the first rule, and the last rule.
0: Of humor. It must be funny.
1: be funny (laughs) to try.
0: Well, and you have in your book a list of jokes that should never be told.
1: Yes, that's true. Jokes that shall never produce laughter. That when a comedian tells them, it curses them to never hear laughter again. And that is why I will not ever read them aloud. We have a recording of them that I conned an actor friend of mine who does not mind never hearing laughter again into making that we will occasionally play.
0: Were you worried about committing them to paper even? Oh, no,
1: no, no. no writing is not the same as talking. Um, I've learned over a long experience. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break, okay. and then we'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today, John Hodgman, is the author of the shortened version of the title here, The Areas of My Expertise. We'll be right back.
2: Well, the gypsy was a lady, traveled all over this land. The gypsy always traveled alone, she never needed a man And the hobo was a drifter, drifted from town to town The last thing that the hobo needed was a woman to tie him down One night they man in a hobo jungle, hold the park say saloon They thought just like two cats and dogs, a-settin' there a eating their stews But the hobo's heart was a-melting, and the gypsies was on fire. And that night in the hobo jungle, they were lost in wild desire. Now the gypsy and the
0: hobo... We're back. This is Ashley David. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Now,
1: was that a song about a gypsy versus a hobo?
0: No, that was a song about... A Gypsy Lady and The Hobo by Boxcar Willie.
1: Oh, finally, finally, you know, making love and well, not war. Well, much,
0: exactly. In fact,
1: mm-hmm. as
0: I was looking for hobo songs yes. for the musical interludes today, you asked during the break if these are the regular songs on the show, and in yeah. fact, they <laughs> are thought, not. What a coincidence. <laughs> these people love hobo songs Hobos here. everywhere. Yeah. Hobos, hobos, all the time. No, we uh, last week had The Carpenters and Rigoletto. Really? Sitting on Top of the World and Anaria.
1: Yeah. Who was the guest? Mary Gateskill. Oh, of course. I of
0: course, guess, you know. Naturally. So, um, anyway, when I was looking for songs about yeah. hobos to play today, mm-hmm. I noticed that women did not seem to be recording hobo songs.
1: Well, historically, there weren't that many women hobos.
0: Well, I, I only found one woman, a gypsy, yeah. to appear in a hobo song title. Yeah. And mm-hmm. that's the song we just heard a bit about. Right, of by Box but Harley. gypsies
1: were not hobos. I mean, that's a song about two great nomadic people's finally putting aside their violins and bindle sticks of war and coming together in the caravan slash boxcar of love. Exactly.
0: So yes. So
1: that's what makes it so inspiring.
0: Yes, and I'm thrilled to have you here today so that I could ask this question yes. about it because Hobo Matters are one of your areas of expertise. They
1: are, yes, one, Yes.
0: But you don't go into the love lives of hobos in your book, and so
1: only only a little bit in the in that one H.L. Uh, Mencken was uh, seduced by a, 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 hobo. a hobo queen.
0: Well, and when you detail the brief lives of some notable hobos yeah. in your book, you mention the convention to elect a hobo queen, yeah, as well as the. Um, best-known hobo queen, Myra Strangey Nelson, yeah. who was also known as the reticent object of H.L. Mencken's affection.
1: Right. and you know That's that a, M- a little nickname she had.
0: <laughs> the, the A.K.A.?
1: Uh, yeah, the reticent well, I, object of H.L. Mencken's affection.
0: Yeah. I, well, I pulled that right out of your book. Yes. That, that's in quotes. So the, the listeners can't see me do it, but she I did. She used to
1: tease Mencken, saying, of course we're descended from apes. Look at my teeth.
0: Yes. Well, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about how. What I'm interested in getting yes. to here yes. are, is feminism, identity politics, and right. the love lives of hobos. Right. And so I'm thinking that when you wrote um, that in Mencken's 1918, In Defense of Women, mm-hmm. um, that it's considered by many scholars to be his apology to. Myra Strange Nelson, yeah. Exactly.
1: He was rejected by her.
0: Heavens to Betsy. Yeah. So let's hear it. Tell us more about gender issues, identity politics, and the love lives of hobos. And well, we can use Macon as the example because I'd love to know more.
1: In, 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 in reality, uh, you know, and, and perhaps an actual scholar, you know, all the research that I did for this book was haphazard, scant, and for the most part accidental because I wanted to avoid accidental insertion of fact into the book. Right. Though did, Some did slip by me.
0: The furry lobster, for example.
1: Well, we can get to that later because okay. that's, that's a different story but uh in in this case you know i i was i was curious and actually kind of sought out uh women hobos uh in history and there weren't many of them certainly not in popular culture and indeed it was uh, hoboism's status as an all male society as part of what freaked the nation out in, in the uh, in the in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s as people were trying to figure out what to do about these millions of men who were leaving families behind, ostensibly to look for work, and but never returning to a middle-class life. And they would quickly become very politicized and obviously, you know, thanks to the drinking and wearing the same pants every day, kind of disreputable and um, were allying with uh, very... Um, uh, um, uh, militant uh, left-wing groups and organizations and, and unions and that sort of thing. The Utah government...
0: Phillips is one of the patron saints of them.
1: Right. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and it, and it was also, I think, uh, people were nervous about it because it was an all-male society. And indeed, uh, after I read the book, I decided to do some research on hobos and discovered some... a whole uh, r- dark subculture to hoboism that I had not known about before, which was that apparently hobos like to have young boys with them on the hobo road to do their begging for them. And in the words of Harry Haywire McClintock, who was recorded by Alan Lomax sort of recounting this, saying, and other things, never expressing exactly what, dot, 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 dot. dot, dot. But you can imagine what might happen in a completely self-contained all-male world of, you know, nomadic guys who are lonely on the road and among young teenagers, what they might be doing. Singing folk songs.
0: That Alan Lomax is recording. Yes, exactly.
1: That's right. Just singing singing beautiful folk songs. What they needed were some tenors. That's why they wanted the teenagers and other things, too. So, you know, and there's this whole... Then once I once I looked into that, and this is just sort of testament to the weirdness of knowledge, that you often don't find things until you're looking for them. And the things that you imagine being the most strange or outlandish things turn out to be true once you sort of imagine them in your own brain first. It had not occurred to me that Franklin Roosevelt would have a real problem with hobos, but... After the fact, I learned from some actual scholarship that he did. And the New Deal was, in some ways, designed to help create a middle class that would lure the hobo back from the railroads and and into American society. You know, this railroad nomadic life of buggering, basically, into mainstream American society. Now, of course, uh, we don't have a problem with hobos anymore. And that's why we don't need a middle class anymore, apparently. So... You know, Myra Strangy Nelson is an invention of the book. There are hobo queens who are queened every year at the hobo convention in Brit, Iowa, which is an actual convention of contemporary modern-day hobos who go there. But I think that to some degree it's, um, you know, it's part of the phobo movement of sort of taking on the, the vestiges of this mythologized past more than a, a direct connection from... Uh, from the uh, of, of hobo generations from then to now. There are a lot of people riding the rails, a lot of young neo-anarchists riding the rails calling themselves hobos. But I don't see it as anything other than phoboism. Phoboism. Yeah, and so when you find me strangled in a boxcar tomorrow, you'll know who to blame. The phobos. Yes. Or Alan Lomax. <laughs> I don't, Alan Lomax, no, I don't think
0: so. No. Um, well, I wonder if... Um, you will diverge again from humor into the real, the real deal, the real serious um,
1: deal well, of time. <laughs> we haven't diverged into humor yet. How can I diverge away from it? <laughs> I'm sorry if you thought that was a laugh riot.
0: No, 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 it wasn't. But
1: I actually put myself to sleep.
0: <laughs> I don't think anybody Do you have a cough button here? I do have a cough button. Do we have a cough button, Jazz? Can we Can we cough? Let's hear it. <coughs> Excuse
1: See? me. I coughed on my own boring saliva. Go on.
0: Do we need another cough button? No, no, I'm fine. All right, cool. Um, well, I wonder, when um, I put the music out there, yeah. Chad, our engineer, walked in and said...
1: Well, you see, this is the hobo loving a gypsy. You know, the hobo couldn't find female hobos to love. He had to turn to the gypsies.
0: He had to move elsewhere.
1: Yeah, there are always women gypsies.
0: Right. Naturally. Now, do you think that there's a good reason for the difference?
1: Well, yeah, because, I mean, reality, gypsies are an ethnic group, you know, that that are that... are are nomadic for largely different reasons and they originated in europe where you know they didn't have trains until 1920 and then they went crazy for them but uh you know the the the, there were always gypsies and generations of gypsies as a self-contained community they didn't rely on recruiting you know you know disenfranchised young men into the group right you know what i mean so yes they had to procreate Thus, women gypsies. Thus, yes, yeah.
0: Thus, we have both right. both genders.
1: The hobos did not procreate; they just had fun in the jungle.
0: Had fun in the boxcars. Yeah. Now, you you said something about. Um, we still don't need a middle class. Uh, we don't really have hobos yeah, anymore. Yeah, that was a joke. That was I did get yeah, that. Okay. I, was, I was chuckling inside. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm pulling the humor out of, uh, right. of the serious thing to take mm. you back into the serious thing, so right. I can actually say we went from one to the other. Okay. Um, we don't have so many hobos anymore, except for the bo- the, the phobos. Yeah. But um, we do have a lot of homeless folks.
1: Yeah, but that's this is something different. I mean, the hob the hobo movement of the of the lo- mo- best known from the 20s and 30s and. Into the 40s, you know, that was a, a birth of poverty, or born of poverty, I should say, to be sure. But it quickly became a self-identifying community of pride, you know. Whereas, uh, you know, there are squ- there are groups of squatters and that sort of thing. But I'm not talking about contemporary urban poor or homeless, you know, the, the you know mentally ill people who were set out on the street during the 80s, you know, and just have never found their way in society again. That's not that's not fun. They don't. They don't sing folk songs and call themselves Tennessee, you know, windshield wiper or whatever. You know,
0: <laughs> yeah. Like
1: there's, there's nothing fun there. I don't think.
0: Right, and you have a whole list of names in the book
1: of hobo of nicknames. Hobos, nicknames. Yeah, nicknames, no. not no. homeless people nicknames yeah. because that's cruel.
0: Yes, well, and there's, there's you
1: know there's such a thin line between writing a book about the American mythology of hobos and then going to bum fight videos. Do you know what I mean? That's not where I'm going in this. I hope you understand.
0: Yes. And I think it was important to clarify for our listeners, too, because there, sometimes... Yeah, because maybe some of
1: them have never heard of bumfight videos, and now they're going to look on the Internet and find them. Boy, I did a good job there, You did a good job I? there. Wow. Yes, exactly.
0: Okay. Oh, well. Um, but there's also a thin line between um, what's humor and what's, what's cruel. Um, sometimes what's almost right. cruel is funny uh, without being cruel.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, do you consciously work to walk that line?
1: Well, I, I don't think that I'm a, a cruel person and I think, you know, uh, the reason why comedy works a lot of the time, and no one really knows exactly why and that's what makes it special and fun. But one of the things about comedy is that if someone says something that is taboo in whatever culture you live in or, you know, it causes embarrassment and you relieve that embarrassment by laughing and it causes some pleasure because probably you've thought about it before. Thus, you have a fart joke. You know, fart joke is funny it's taboo, and you're not supposed to talk about it, and then it's out in the open, and you relieve relief that by laughing. You know, the thing about The Daily Show that is so um, wonderful and sad is that they're simply reporting what's going on around us and, beca- and being straightforward about how crazy it is, and because they're just telling the truth. The truth is a taboo, therefore we laugh, you know, so. Um, and cruel humor, you know tends to work on the same premise which is to say if you make fun of someone who's different than you if you make fun of a stereotype that everyone sort of knows and wrestles with and everything else then and you put it out there in the open and you say it in a very broad way it will provoke that it will push that same funny bone we call it in science um i tend to feel that you know there's humor that it's just not me i'm not some i'm not a particularly cruel person um, and I don't, i you know, I can be forced to laugh at those things just like everyone else because it's reflexive and something we don't understand, but it's not what I would really choose to do. You know, the one joke that I'm really concerned about in the book is, um, when I talk about the difference between, um, Tennessee whiskey and bourbon whiskey. you know, bourbon whiskey is, uh, whiskey that is made from 50% or more corn, Uh, and then is aged in uh, charred oak barrels, new charred oak barrels, for a period of time, more than three months or something like that. Tennessee whiskey uh, is actually a barroom euphemism for semen that has been filtered through, uh, through charcoal for several days. And that is a very funny joke to people who understand the actual difference between Tennessee whiskey and bourbon whiskey. But since a lot of those people are Tennesseans, they probably want to kill me now.
0: So what makes you nervous about the the joke? Tennessee
1: whiskey, first of all, I should say, is delicious whiskey that is not semen in right. reality. Okay. okay. okay.
0: So just to clarify. But
1: it is the same thing as bourbon whiskey. In reality, it is the same thing as bourbon whiskey, except that it is filtered through charcoal for like 10 days or something like that. Unless you get Jack Daniels, which is a delicious whiskey that I drink and is not semen. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. Gotcha. So I used to write about food and wine and spirits. Well, not wine so much. Uh, for a magazine. So this was something that I was very interested in. And I came up with this joke and it was just so outlandish and bizarre and weird and sort of mean spirited, but like, you know, non sequitur type mean spirit. Like, why would someone pick on Tennessee whiskey you know, right. that, well, it's the, uh, that I actually considered not putting it in the book? And at the end of the day, I just found it so stupid and funny that I decided I had to do it. And um, I'm very nervous. I've been asked to read in Tennessee, and I'm very nervous about what will happen when I go down there.
0: So you're worried then about the about picking on Southerners or about Tennessee? About no,
1: I just, you know, why pick on – it's not Southerners in particular. It's just why pick on Tennessee? Why pick on Tennessee whiskey? In part, that's sort of what made it funny to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because it was just so out of left field to, to say that it's a barroom euphemism for what I said before.
0: Yeah, well, although it's not out of left field to make fun of Southerners, I I am one. I'm from yeah, the south, and, right? Um, and I
1: and I'm, let me can I say? Yes. Please. You look funny. Do I look funny? Yeah, you look like some kind of funny hick. Hillbilly, Excellent.
0: I've always wanted to look southern funny. person. Thank you. That's, yeehaw. Yeehaw. No. Um, but I, but I do notice because I consciously got rid of my accent when I was very small because people thought we were kind of dumb and funny. And um, and so yeah. I, and I notice now that I live away and that I'm not marked by an accent that says I'm from there, that people will say things they probably wouldn't say if they knew I were from there.
1: Really? Mm-hmm. Like what I said about Tennessee whiskey?
0: Yeah, I'm horribly offended. No,
1: but you're from Georgia. Yeah. You don't care. I don't care about the Tennessee. <laughs> right, because <laughs> right, they're stupid, right? <laughs> exactly. The other side of
0: the mountains. Those people, whoo!
1: You know you're a redneck if You'll you lose. live in Tennessee. <laughs>
0: We're in trouble. We're all going to rot in hell.
1: I'm just kidding. No, it's just not my thing. It's just not... I mean, that was just so... Like, it was coming from a part of my brain that I normally don't recognize, and... And I kept it in. And it's really, you know, I don't know, maybe the Tennessee people think that it's hilarious that I made that joke. Maybe they haven't ever read my book or whatever because they're all illiterate. (laughs) Ha, 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 ho! Yes!
0: Yes, sir! Well, we're going to take a... I'm (laughs) just kidding, for heaven's sake. We're going to take a short break. That's a good place to do it. Um, You're tuned in to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor.
1: For how long will I be living now is the question.
0: (laughs) That's John Hodgman asking that question. He is the author of The Areas of My Expertise. We'll be right back.
3: I'll go free train
2: to oh, be my friend, oh, Lord. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. You know I hobo, 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 hobo. Hobo a long, long.
0: Hi, you're tuned into the Living Writers Show. That was John Lee Hooker singing the Hobo Blues. My name's Ashley David. My guest today, John Hodgman, is I will say publicly very funny. Um, and we were just talking in the break because I <laughs> don't
1: understand that. You know, we, we're on this book tour. My friend Jonathan Colton and I. He plays guitar when I read. And um, and I, we've just been going around. And like every radio show I've done has been a like a morning zoo show. Uh-huh. So I've been talking to you know like. Buddy in the Tank and, you know, Stink Pot and Herb or whatever, you know, like, and, you know, it's always like, so tell us about these wacky hobos. Ding, ding, ding. hauga, You know, like, oh, OK. Well, in 1932 at the bonus marches and then just things kind of drift down from there. But we have a great time. And I'm like, boy, I wonder what it would be like to, you know, be on a radio show where... They kind of, you know, where they took me seriously, and now I really know. Wow. <laughs> now I know <laughs> really hard. <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, okay. I, I walked in, but there. I'm very
1: flattered as well. And you know, you should check out uh, if they if they play it again, Man Cow in the Morning." I've got I've got some good lines. Man on there. Cow I got in some, the morning. All got right, some make a note. So I got some, you know, I got a, f- a few punches in, so it was fun.
0: Well, awesome. Well I I wonder if you would read another little passage from the book. Yeah, um, sure. How about some uh history's worst men's haircuts? Oh, okay.
1: The other the other part of the book where I slander a whole group of people. Thank you. <laughs> If all of history may be counted as a year, and human history merely the last ten seconds of that year, then you may be surprised to learn that more than two-thirds of the worst haircuts in history may be contained in the slightest fraction of a millisecond in which man has played hockey. There is something about the gliding sport that attracts not only bad haircuts, but hair of the sort and texture that was once euphemistically termed by forgiving barbers as hard grooming. Rubbery, thick and carpet-like. As the columnist Liam Dorn wrote in the Ontario Lamplighter newspaper in 1928, A hockeyist does not have hair so much as a thick fungal covering that starts at about two inches from the circumference of his head and then grows in. Leaving aside the mullet, of which too much has already been said, other favorites of the hockeyist included the scrape, the scab, the floppy dog-ear haircut, the executive floppy dog ear haircut, and the shag swoop, which was advertised as being able to somehow produce, quote, the illusion of a mustache, unquote, and required two barbers working simultaneously and ended with the ringing of a bell. The end.
0: Thank you. That's a passage from the areas of my expertise.
1: By me, John Hodgman.
0: da 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 da
1: can I say that we're going to re- be reading at seven o'clock tonight at Borders number one store here in Ann Arbor, I the don't original think Borders. did.
0: the original yeah. Borders, the borders very first one. Borders yeah. Seven
1: p.m. Hewn from a solid piece of granite sometime in the fifteenth century. Yes. No one knows who did it. Perhaps giants. Giants. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm thinking. Well, who else? Who else had the skills to hew an entire bookstore out of granite in the sixteenth century?
0: Do you think that perhaps that's where we? Came up with the pyramids and things, too. I have Egypt on the brain these days. Yeah,
1: I know. Well, you mean Egyptian giants? Yeah. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. I yeah. would guess so.
0: That explains so much.
1: I know. Well, see, now you don't have to go to Cairo. That's it? Yeah.
0: Well, my cat will be pleased.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good. What are you going to do if you go, you're go? you going to go to Cairo to study uh, the birth of civilization? And I presume you're going to have the cat put to sleep or something?
0: Cruel. We were talking about cruelty before.
1: (laughs) I'm just saying, you made made a a promise to this cat implicitly to take care of it for the rest of its life that you're about to break. So how are you going to handle that?
0: Patrons in California have promised to take very good care of Zilla. Oh, yeah.
1: I fell for that scam once, too. Well, good luck.
0: Yes, well.
1: Good luck to Fluffy.
0: Good luck to Fluffy. Nozilla is her name. Oh, really? Mm, Yes. Um, But uh, she will be well well cared for, I assure you. And now that I needn't go, she'll be even better cared
1: for. Exactly so.
0: So I wonder, um, I have sitting here on the table a copy of Julio Cortázar's Hopscotch.
1: Yep. And another laugh riot.
0: Another riot. Laugh a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, in in 1963, this was published as Rayuela and translated then in, I believe, 66 to Hopscotch, translated into English. Um, the readers encouraged to jump around at random or according to an order prescribed by Cortázar. Right. Rather than to read the book from cover to cover. Yes not unlike the no, way no
1: you could read it two ways you could read it straight, straight through straight through or you could start with the first chapter and then at the bottom of every chapter there's a number which leads you to the next chapter that you're supposed to read in a different order and there are maybe a dozen or more i it's been a while since i've counted them uh extra chapters at the end that then get folded into the novel as you read it in this different order mm-hmm. and so you can you can come at, you can you can examine the novel from two points of view i suppose and by examine i mean read and enjoy read and enjoy not dissect in a horribly (laughs) clinical way
0: turn it into an experiment
1: (laughs) yeah and to me as dull as that sounds to me when i when i first read this book now many years ago that was like a brain explosion for me because it was this guy was having fun you know this guy was writing real stuff about you know real characters but was being playful and you know Playfulness in literature is nothing new, but it's not something that's taught very often. So that was a big inspiration, and indeed, you know, my book is is designed to be flitted through and, and read in different orders and followed through footnotes and that sort of thing. And the influence there is two part. One, Cortazar, and two, Uncle John's Bathroom Reader.
0: Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. Tell yeah. us about that.
1: Uh, I think most of your listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. It's cute that you're pretending you've never heard of it, but it's a it's a series of books that you keep, shall we say, next to the bathtub, to Adapt. read to read while engaged.
0: Right now, that's funny. And that's it's fun and, and these are
1: these are books that that you know are full of trivia and and old you know stories of the weird and exactly what my book is based on as well, except that they're factual. Uncle John's bathroom readers.
0: And yours is factual, but made up by you.
1: Yeah, made up facts. Okay,
0: gotcha. Yeah. Now, in your notes to your book, you throughout the book, you do encourage us to skip around because you have these footnotes yeah. that send us to different places. In fact, the passage you just read from sends us elsewhere to a, a facial hair discussion.
1: Yes, to a beard manual. A beard manual. Yeah.
0: Um, and in the opening notes, you um, encourage folks to skip around. Yes. And you sort of admonish the linear readers as, I believe you call them, old-fashioned old-timers.
1: Yes, exactly those those sad elderly folk who still read books from start to finish the book was not written that way so i don't see why it should be read that way the book was written in discrete chunks and then assembled in, in a way that would seem playful and fun you know
0: so you wrote the the pieces as their own discrete entities and yeah. thought about how not unlike assembling a book of poems in fact
1: <laughs> for example exactly except mm. you totally different can't make money on poems
0: Right, as we were discussing. Um, well, have you been? I do
1: have one poem in the book.
0: Would you care to read it for us?
1: No, I'll read that tonight. At okay,
0: reading. You y'all have to show up for the reading at Borders at seven, and then
1: you'll. That's how I build the suspense. Time.
0: There you go. Yeah, keep them hanging.
1: <laughs> what kind of poem is he going to read? Will it rhyme? The answer is yes, it rhymes. But that's it. That's all I'm going to say about the poem.
0: Okay. Well, then we'll move on.
1: Okay. Very good.
0: So. You told us earlier in the interview that you went to Yale about a thousand years ago. Yes. And um, I'm wondering if you um, have developed your um, inclination, desire, and aptitude for being funny um, since then, or if this is something that you sort of started way back in the first grader before.
1: Well, I, you know, I don't know. I I always, you know, leaned to humor. Um, As a kid, I always liked that stuff, Monty Python, obviously, as any sort of non-sports oriented asthmatic freak kid might enjoy you know geeky humor and uh and i did and then through yale i got super serious for a long time but then sort of started digging cortazar and and borges in particular and there was a lot i mean it's very dry humor very droll but uh but a lot of gamesmanship there and i remembered that things could be playful and then you know, I tried to write serious short fiction and um, with some moderate success, but mainly failure, um, after I left college and was working as a literary agent. And it wasn't until I discovered uh, Dave Eggers' McSweeney's that I could sort of – I could be re- be reminded again that serious writing can also be very playful. And there's something very serious about play and something very playful about serious writing. And it's okay to be funny. And, um, and that's what led ultimately to, to this book. Into this uh, laugh fest here,
0: laugh track, jazz Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Rim Rimshot.
0: Yes. Well, you asked when you sat down what all these things were on the table, and yes. I have, and I told you they were props because I'm kind of shy. Because I,
1: I had never know. seen books before, and I now I know now this you know, is what this you're is talking, about. Book, oh, yes, okay, talking about. Oh, okay, good. Yeah.
0: Then you brought out some props of your own. We now have walkie talkies. So
1: yes, we could I need to have those back at some yeah, point. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be sure. Yeah, to return. This is an, an, a, a primitive form of radio that we use sometimes.
0: The walkie-talkie. The walkie-talkie. The cannon string.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, um, before you go, we have yes. a little. Um, I have a. Well, war- oh, I'm not little- going anywhere. We're <laughs> just gonna move. It's it on in now. And- keep, it,
1: right. keep it. Keep it This is going to be a jazz odyssey.
0: Fabulous. Um, I have a little award to present on behalf of the Living Writers Show. Thank because you. Because after careful consideration and tabulation, and with several other notables in the running. We are proud to announce that you are the winner, hands down, of the Most Famous John Award.
1: Oh, that's and not true, though, but thank you.
0: No, the Most Famous John Award, who has been a guest on The Resiving Room. Oh, oh, a much oh longer yes, well, then than that's the definitely true. <laughs> because we had John McCain on, but he doesn't really write his books. He doesn't? Mark Salter does.
1: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Mm, he,
0: t- he dictates. So they're, they're his books, but they're right. not read, penned by him. And you actually sat in a little dark room and wrote.
1: No, no, no. I dictated mine as well.
0: Oh, I'm going to have to I, take yeah. that back.
1: <laughs> I have a studio of helpers. Yeah. Yeah. No. Right. No, the no, no. no I, wrote, I wrote it. It's true. Okay. I want the scroll that badly. What has been handed to me is a beautiful little scroll with a, a wonderful r- red ribbon Well, it's a, a, it. certificate
0: oh, a certificate printed on parchment and tied up with a red organdy ribbon, which we hope you will frame and treasure always.
1: And the ribbon, of course, I will. And then, what do you want me to do with the certificate?
0: Frame and oh, yeah,
1: oh yes, of course. Oh, look, thank you very much.
0: So it says um, the most famous John Award presented to John Hodgman, professional writer, on behalf of the Living Writers Show.
1: Oh wow, I feel like the scarecrow at the end of the Wizard of Oz. Thank you so much. That's great.
0: It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show today.
1: Oh, a testimonial.
0: Yes, everyone I've talked to has been like, you're you really? I mean, you know what? You're coming on the show?
1: Really? Yeah. What are all your friends Southern and they can't talk properly? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes.
0: Those are my people you're talking about. I hope stars. that everyone was
1: listening from the beginning <laughs> and know Those that I don't people. feel that way. Oh, yeah. boy, it'll be a fun reading tonight, it's I'm be sure. so
0: much fun. All the Southerners are going to storm the stage. Yeah. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, John Hodgman.
1: Oh, thank you.
0: Our engineer, Chaz Barrett.
1: Thank you, Chaz.
0: And our lovely listeners.
1: Thank you, lovelies.
0: Please stay tuned to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. And in the words of The Living Writers Show's official, most famous John, Mr. John Hodgman, that is all. My name is Ashley David, and the sports report is next.
1: Can I do that, too? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
3: Some hobo Without
2: Sports Report. Puts it around the board. Hensick is there. Puts it out in front. Shot attempt by Turnbull. He scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead. It's now 3-1. to one. Eight seconds left to go. He was up it neutral neutralize. Five seconds left to go. Tentzik gets the puck, sends it all the way in, over the goal. And time is going to expire. The Wolverines have won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yostice Arena.
3: Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. I'm Stuart Zoss, joined here in studio by... Rushi Vias and Cheryl Friedman, along with Ted Pickus Engineering, behind the glass. And we'll get things started on our daily sports report today with Rushi and Michigan News. All right, sad day
2: today for Michigan hockey. Former coach Vic Heiliger passed away at the age of